0: We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to the end of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, we'll be reading today verses 8 through 13. This is God's holy word again as he gave to the apostle Paul as Paul wrote to the brethren at Corinth, being Superintended by the Holy Spirit, the writing of this word is, was infallible and therefore this is the inerrant word of the living God as we read here 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 8 through 13. Let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's briefly pray that the Lord will bless its reading and hearing. Lord, we do indeed pray that you would... Be pleased to bless not only the reading of your infallible word, but its proclamation and its hearing. Grant that my words might make your word clear to your people. Let nothing I say be out of accord with it, and let us all hear rightly what you would have us to hear and know, that we might be applying to our lives the things that you teach in your word. For we pray in the name of your incarnate word, in Jesus' name. Amen. When 1 Corinthians 13, we've learned about the importance of love and the meaning of love so far. We saw love is more important than even the spiritual gifts that the Corinthian Christians were valuing so much. And it's right to value spiritual gifts, though There might have been some overemphasis, as we'll see on particular gifts. The love that God gives his people is more important than outward acts of charity and self-sacrifice, we saw. And, And this love that is so important is not just any form of love as we might define it, or as we might call love. It's not to be defined to fit whatever preferences you and I might have or other people here on earth might have so so as to be able to ignore God's righteous standards and say that, that in favor of some sappy, sentimental def- definition of love that we will overlook unrighteousness and say that it's in fact good and call evil good and good evil because we are trying to practice love. No, that's not love. Rather, the love that we see talked about here is the self-giving love which Christ has shown the church, and it's a love which is obedient to and consistent with God's moral character and His revealed will. As we noted last time, it's not loving to rejoice in someone's doing something that is self-destructive, that's bringing God's wrath upon them. It's manifested and displayed in patience, in kindness, in not being envious, in putting others ahead of ourselves, in humility, in gentleness. It's not manifested by rejoicing in wrongdoing, in the name of love and acceptance, which is so often what our culture tells us. But it is manifested by rejoicing, we saw last time, with truth, with what God reveals is right. So after examining both the importance of love and the meaning of love, today we consider the permanence of love, as Paul talks about it here at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Love as Paul has defined it here, not, again, a Sampe sentimentalism or any, any human definition of love, but as it's defined in Scripture here, that love is permanent, Paul says. That's a major reason why it's more important even than very important things that God has given the church, like spiritual gifts. That love is permanent is the main point of this passage. In fact, we see here three main things. Number one, love is more permanent than the spiritual gifts the Corinthians valued so highly. Number two, love will last into the world to come. And third, we'll see that love lasts beyond when even the objects of our faith and hope are fully realized. So faith and hope are very important, but love even outlasts them. And as we'll see, we're not talking here about the the saving faith that attaches us to Christ. That also is, is permanent, and we'll have it in the world to come. But we'll see what Paul means by this as we dig into the chapter So again, the main point of the passage is that love is permanent. Love, as Paul has defined it in this chapter, will not cease to exist. It will always exist. The first part of verse 8, love never fails. That's how this passage started. Love never fails. After all, if love is an essential attribute of God's very being and character to such a degree that uh, he would tell us in 1 John 4, 8, and 16 that God is love, then love could no more cease to exist than God could cease to exist. God is eternal. He is everlasting. He will never cease to exist. And therefore love, which is an essential component of his very character, will never cease to exist. And Paul illustrates the permanence of love in three particular ways in this passage. Number one, love is more permanent than the spiritual gifts the Corinthians value so highly. This is something that's an important lesson for them to learn because uh, they have been valuing certain gifts like tongues, we'll see, uh, so highly that they're placing that above their love for one another in the church. We've noted before, and we will see more clearly in chapter 14, that many in the Corinthian church have overemphasized the more showy gifts, and especially that gift of tongues. And all the while, the church was factionalized. It was disunited to such a degree that their disunity even profaned the Lord's Supper, Paul said in chapter 11. So Paul, in seeking to remedy that problem, uh, teaches not of the importance of love and the characteristics of truly true godly love but also its permanence and that it is going to last beyond those gifts that the church is so valuing and even sometimes dividing itself over love as biblically defined will last longer than even the very important spiritual gifts The Lord gives the church, they're important, uh, He gives them for its maintenance and advancement in this present age. Uh, Some uh, were for the earliest stage of that development, and some are ongoing. But Paul points out here that love will last longer even than those things, which are very necessary and we should value. Paul writes, But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now we need to pause here and and, uh, dig into what Paul is saying in the Greek in particular. For one thing, we need to consider the Greek verbs in question, and in particular the voice in which they appear here. I'll explain what that means here in a minute. The, The New King James translation we read might be a little bit misleading, and we see that Love never fails, and then we see prophecies will fail, and we might think it must be the same verb. It actually isn't. Uh, we might be led to think that Paul uses the same verb for love and prophecies failing, but but in actuality, and these are two different Greek verbs. Uh, the verb translated with love, love never fails, is pretty straightforward, it's ekpipte, or ek, yeah, yes, ekpipte, I thought I said it wrong, but I did. I said it right. Ekpipte, it's, a, it's an active verb, uh, something that runs out, literally. Uh, something that stops working or existing. So cease is, or fail. Both, uh, both good translations of that. Fail is a very good translation of it. Love is never going to, to stop working. It's never going to fail. It's never going to run out. Like a, a well that might run out of water or something like that at some point. Nope, love will always keep flowing. The verb translated with prophecies, it says prophecies will fail, is a different verb. And it's actually passive, and that's important as we think about the voice. Uh, is it active? Is it passive? And there's also in, in Greek something called the middle voice that will be important here as we come up here. But uh, it's passive. It uh, literally means to be abolished. Something to be abolished. And the same verb is used with knowledge. Uh, So it's just in the singular. The knowledge, it will be abolished. It's literally what the Greek says. It's a passive verb. Katarge, thesentai. passive. So both prophecies and knowledge will be abolished, we're told. Think about uh, American history. What, did, what, did we, what happened near the end of the Civil War right? and afterwards? Slavery was abolished. So it ceased to be in effect. It had no effect whatsoever. It was not legal any longer for people to hold slaves in America. That institution was abolished. So, prophecies and knowledge will be abolished, Paul says. Well, how and when will this happen, we might ask. Well, uh, verses 9 and 10 tell us, For we know in part, and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And again, it's the same passive verb there, that done away is the verb to be abolished. So, this will occur when Uh, That which is perfect has come, Paul says. Well, what's perfect? Well, that's a reference, of course, to the world to come. The new heavens and new earth. In fact, the the word for perfect there is teleon. That refers to a complete end for which something was created. In other words, when the world for which this world was created actually comes into existence... The world that should exist when it occurs, when there will be no longer sin and death, that's the teleon, that's the perfect. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That's the teleon, that's the perfect that Paul is talking about here. Now the extraordinary gift of prophecy that we saw uh, accompanying the apostolic ministry uh, when predictions about coming events and, and counsel from God guided the church before the New Testament was completed. Uh, that's something, of course, that was needed in that age and is not for us. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure in Scripture. And then we need to remember that that Scripture then is still the prophetic word. It is the telling forth of God's word. But that inscripturated prophetic word, the Bible, will always be necessary... As long as this world lasts, we need the written word of God. And that would be included in what Paul says calls here prophecies that will cease. It will continue until the return of Christ to be the fact that we, uh, we need the written word of God and we need what the New Testament calls prophesying as in the sense of expositing that word the telling forth of God's word. That's something that's going to continue to be needed as long as this world lasts. Prophecies will not be needed when God in the world to come will be revealing himself directly to each individual. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four predicts, No longer shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That, of course, would also cover knowledge. Know know the Lord. No longer will we need to say that in the world to come. That spiritual gift for making God's word and uh, thereby God himself known to his people, that's no longer going to be needed in the world to come. Prophecies and knowledge will be abolished. Everyone living in the teleon, in the perfect, will know the Lord without misunderstanding, without the errors and the rebellions that come from our indwelling sin in this world. Now, while prophecies and knowledge will be abolished, we're told, in the world to come, Paul uses a different verb to go with tongues in this passage, in verse 8. He says, whether there are tongues, they will cease. And the verb for cease there is a, a pausentai. Uh, it's from pao to to stop. Uh, but as it appears here, it's in what's called the middle voice. So prophecies and knowledge will be abolished, the passive voice, the abolition will happen to them from the outside. The abolishing will be done to them. Uh, we don't have a direct equivalent to middle voice in English, so some gr- English grammarians use middle voice to speak of uh, reflexive verbs. Uh, the nearest thing that we have is a reflexive verb. Uh, I helped myself to the food on the table. Right? Uh, sometimes English grammar books call, the, we call that middle voice, but in Greek there are reflexive verbs, and then there's this other thing called the middle voice Uh, But in the Greek, the middle voice, uh, instead of the the subject being the recipient of the action uh, from some other source, as in passive voice, or the subject doing the action, as in the active voice, in the Greek there's this thing called the middle voice, where the subject is acting for or unto itself. In other words, tongues will cease of themselves, basically is what Paul says. It's really hard to translate it into English. That together with the fact that tongues are not mentioned in verse 9 or 10 as something that endures until the perfect comes, and we get this strong indication that Paul is expecting tongues to cease soon. Soon after he wrote this. In the next chapter in verse 21, Paul will say that, he'll quote actually Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, saying, "...with men... Of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear. Uh, Tongues is a gift that was meant to convince unbelievers and to convict Israelites, unbelieving Israelites, of their guilt of not believing God's word. It's a sign of judgment on unbelieving Israel, a judgment which culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy. By that time, tongues as a spiritual gift was already fading away. Indeed, Paul will point out in the next chapter that tongues is an inferior gift to prophesying. There he's talking more about expositing God's word because it's less edifying. The tongues was a testimony to unbelievers, he'll say, and and an indictment on unbelieving Israel, not ongoing evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church in perpetuity. It was a sign that confirmed the gospel preached by the apostles was authentically from God, that uh, it belonged to the various groups of people that it was being proclaimed to, We see in the book of Acts, uh, Jews and then Samaritans and then formerly pagan Gentiles who now believe in the Lord speak in tongues. The fact that Paul expects tongues to cease, and it seems to be quite soon, is uh, really borne out in the fact that the gift is not mentioned in any of his later letters or anyone else's later letters. The book of Acts will be written later than this, but it will be talking about things, it's a historic book, talking about things that happened in the past. and Tongues is mentioned there, of course. But we don't find it in Paul's later letters. We don't find it in the letters of John or James or Jude. If it were so important that tongues would be the great evidence of a person's salvation, you would think that Paul might have mentioned it to Timothy or Titus in his pastoral epistles. But the universal testimony of the ancient church fathers, the people who were trained by the apostles or trained by the people who were trained by the apostles, they testified that the gift had ceased in the days of the apostles. There was only a heretical group in the early centuries of the church that tried to revive the speaking in tongues as a necessary gift and they were using it to support their other false teachings That had no scriptural report. Tongues was already ceasing in Paul's day. Prophecies and knowledge will last as long as the fallen world lasts. Tongues was already ceasing in Paul's day. And Paul's point here is that love is more permanent, therefore, than those things. Than even those extremely valuable gifts God has given the church. It's more important than what I'm doing right now. Because it's more permanent. That doesn't mean that what I'm doing right now is unimportant. It's extremely important for the church in this age. But love's going to outlast it. In the world to come, I won't have this job. This will not be my calling. To instruct others in the word of God. Because you won't need it. Not the way you do now. Secondly, love will last into the world to come. So, love—we're talking here about the permanence of love. Love is going to last into the world to come. That's why it's more permanent than the things that are for this world that God has given the church. Since, uh, as, as an aside, we might note that since Jesus tells us that our marriages are for this life and not for the world to come, love will outlast your marriage. Verses eleven and twelve. Paul says here, he talks about a lasting into the world to come. When when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. The then that he's referring to there, it refers to the perfect world that he's been talking about, to the perfect, to the teleon he mentioned in verse 10. Certain spiritual gifts, like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, are, or in the case of tongues were, necessary for the church in various stages of its development and its maturation in this world, but they will not be necessary in the world to come. Right now we are like developing children. We know that Children see the world differently than those of us who are grown. Those of you who are still under age, you're not quite seeing the world the same way you will in a few years. It's not just because children are ignorant of how the world works and of cultural norms and figures of speech. It's always fun, especially having toddlers at home. they, They take figures of speech that we use very literally, right? Because they don't quite process those things quite the same way. But it's, it's not just because they're ignorant. They have yet to learn certain facts. Uh, in fact, evidence now strongly indicates that our brains are not even fully developed until we're about 25 years old. Someone in his or her late teens, or early 20s, is reaching that stage of full development, and so they can reason much more like they will. So when you're 22, you reason not too differently than you will at 30, but we know that at 30 we thought a little differently than we did at 22 or 21 or 20. But we don't think so much differently when we're 40, right? That we've learned more things, so we might think differently in that sense. But our thought processes are pretty much what they're going to be for the rest of our lives by the time we're 30 or in our mid 20s really someone in his or her late teens is reaching that stage so they think more like an adult than say a 14-year-old and a 14-year-old has a more mature developed way of thinking than a 7-year-old and a 7-year-old than a 3-year-old there is development as we grow when we're children we reason as children and at some point we stop reasoning that way. We reason in a different way. As we enter into adulthood, we reason in more mature ways. We put away, as Paul says, childish things. Childish ways of seeing the world. You know, kids, the, the reason your parents act differently and think differently than you do isn't just because they're old fuddy-duddies or something like that. It's, it's because they, they have reached a different stage of development with how they think. And you will too all the things that you think are ridiculous about your parents' thought processes, you'll be thinking like that uh, when you get older as well. So when we get older, we put away childish ways of... And when Paul says childish, here he's not using it in the negative sense either. He's just saying there's a way to think when you're a kid, there's a way to think when you're an adult. When you become an adult, you think differently than you did. You put away those things that you used to think and do but when we're still children, before we come to our capacity to reason, to our full capacity to reason, we're going to need aids, right? We're going to need guidance. We need help in our process of development. And, you know, a two year old needs more help than a ten year old. And a ten year old more guidance than an eighteen year old. Similarly, in this age, Christians need aids. And the early church needed maybe a few more than we do because we now have the prophetic word made more sure, as Paul says. We have the scriptures. And of course we also now have the benefit of 2,000 years of wise people's exposition of that scripture. And so that gives us more help. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so the church as a whole, in a sense, is more developed. Not that each of us individually is smarter than somebody who lived 1,500 years ago, but we have more resources, don't we? So at this age, though, Christians will always need AIDS so that we won't, uh, we won't uh, fall back into erroneous ways. But we won't need those AIDS in the world to come. In the earliest stage of the New Covenant era, the church needed tongues and other extraordinary signs. Later in the age, we no longer need those signs, but we have the completed scriptures to guide us, and we have gifted teachers of scripture, and as I said, 2,000 years worth of good scholarship. In the world to come, we won't even need those. They're very important things, but they're not going to last into the world to come. We don't see clearly yet, Paul says. He says it's like seeing in a mirror dimly. In Paul's day, most mirrors were made of metals, especially bronze was the most common, or one of the most common uh, materials used to make a mirror. And so you would burnish and polish uh, this bronze. You would would finely smooth it out and polish it, and it would give a very good reflection. But the difference between a bronze mirror and the glass mirrors that you and I are so used to is, yes, your glass mirror might get some dirt on it and uh, maybe maybe a little spray from when you were brushing your teeth or something like that, and so we need periodically to clean them, right, because there's something obscuring our vision in the way. But a, a bronze mirror would get tarnished, maybe maybe a little dimmed here or there, a little dented here and there, and so the image would get dimmed and distorted over time, and you would have to to smooth it out again, you'd have to burnish it again and, and polish it. And so Paul refers to here uh, looking into one of those bronze mirrors as it needs to be uh, redone or maybe replaced. And you look in that mirror dimly. right? And the image is dim. It's not a very good reflection. It's going to be distorted a bit. And that's how we see things now. We see a dim reflection. We see a distorted image. We don't see clearly. Our ability to see the things of God is obscured. So we need help. We need help to clarify the image for us. But in the next world, we won't need that kind of help, Paul says. Revelation 21, 22 verses verses 21... Chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. But I saw... No temple in it, in God's city, he's talking about. For the Lord God and the Lamb are are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. It's a way of saying, it didn't need outside sources of light or of knowledge, because God was right there in a way that could be clearly perceived by His people. The Lamb was right there, you could see Him. As John says at the beginning, First John, you know, these are things that we saw, that we touched. We'll, we'll have that kind of experience. It'll be tangible. We'll be able to touch Christ in the world to come. We will know God, as Paul says, in a way akin to how He knows us. Love, unlike prophesying tongues or knowledge, will last into the world to come. Love never fails, Paul says. And thirdly, love lasts beyond the time when the objects of our faith and hope are fully realized. Uh, verse 13, and now abide, the, abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's consider Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, or or really the assurance, of things not seen. It's helpful to take those in reverse. Faith is assurance of things not seen. Faith is being sure something you can't see is true nevertheless, even though you can't see it. Well, why? Because God said so. Think of... Abraham, in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that despite his old age, he's going to be the father of a son and have innumerable descendants. And Abraham believed it. Abraham believed God. He believed it because God said it. Faith is assurance of things not seen. Faith is also the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews tells us. We hope for things that God has promised. We look forward eagerly to God's promises being fulfilled, and when we've received all of those things in, in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, what will we be believing that has yet to be shown to us? What will we need to believe that we have yet to see? What, will we, what would you still be hoping for when God has already given you all the things that you have eagerly expected? Nothing. But love will endure. And so, while faith, hope, love abide, and must, if the church is to exist now in this age, the greatest of these, even these three great things, is love. Love is permanent. Do you value it more even than the spiritual gifts God has given the church? This is a hard thing for a preacher. Do I value love more than what I'm doing right now? I mean, this is this is my bread and butter. Not not just. Physically speaking, in terms of my way of making a living, I mean, this this is what gets me going, so to speak, internally. This is what, what I'm wired for. Love is more important than it. Tongues have ceased. Even the very important gifts of preaching and teaching God's word will no longer be needed in the world to come. Value love even more than those valuable gifts. Love will last into the world to come, even after our faith and hope have been fulfilled yes you will still have saving faith so this isn't saying that your saving faith will somehow cease you'll have that that velcro as we've called it sometimes those hooks that bind you to Christ those things that bind you to Christ now by your faith is the same thing that you'll still have in the world to come you'll still have that faith that binds you to Christ you'll have complete trust in God for all things that's not going to disappear But that element of faith whereby we believe things that we have yet to see, well, that's not going to be there. What will you have yet to see? Yes, God will continually be revealing Himself to you, but you won't have any promises of God yet to see fulfilled. They'll all be fulfilled. When when we have all things that God has promised, what more need for hope will there be? We will have no more need for hope because all the things that we have hoped for will have come to pass. So the greatest, even of those three great things, faith, hope, and love, is love. Cherish it as the greatest of all things that God has given you. Well, let's pray. Lord, Grant that we may value love above all these other very valuable things. And that our love for you, for neighbor, and especially for your church, for one another, may abound as we pray in the name of the one who showed us your love perfectly. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.